Technical interviews can be stressful events. April Wenzel's on the show today to talk to us about a lot of the aspects of a typical technical interview that are really actually broken and harmful and uh, actually get in the way of hiring great people. She's recommending things like hiring for mindset and attitude and looking for things like empathy and mentorship skills to allow candidates to show their strengths during the interview process instead of looking for their weaknesses, even to the point where a candidate should leave the interview process feeling good about both your company and themselves, regardless of the hiring decision. I think those are great goals, and I learned a lot from talking with her, and I hope you do too. Welcome to Testing Code, a podcast about software development, software testing, and Python. Welcome to Testing Code. On today's episode, I have April Wenzel. Before we get started, will you introduce who you are? Sure. Yeah. So my name is April Wenzel. Happens to rhyme with pencil. I am a software engineer. I've led engineering teams, worked at a bunch of tech companies for about 10 years in Silicon Valley. And a few years ago, I started my own company, Compassionate Coding, to fix some of the toxic elements of the tech industry. That's pretty cool. So the the Compassionate Coding, how do you fix that? Yeah, right. Good question. (laughs) So a lot of people might not agree that there is a toxic problem in the tech industry, but I see it as, uh, you know, it has a few different parts to it. For one, the glaring thing to me was just, you know, the lack of diversity throughout the tech industry, but it's, it doesn't stop there. You know, we're building a lot of times unethical products or even a, in a milder case, products with not the best UX for our users and not, you know, accessible, things like that as well. And, you know, a lot of times projects fail and there's just kind of poor communication on teams, poor collaboration. A lot of projects aren't failing for technical reasons, quote, they're failing for people reasons, like not working on the right problems or not distributing work right or not collaborating effectively. And then uh, finally, burnout is a big problem in tech. So a lot of people are dealing with stress and burnout and they just a lot of times don't feel comfortable talking about it because there's some shame around it. So anyway, so I saw all of these problems as related because they all relate to the human element that often gets neglected in our digital world. And so compassionate coding is really about emphasizing emotional intelligence and related concerns like ethics and making that the center of uh, what we do in software development. So asking in every decision we make, technical or otherwise, what's the compassionate choice here? So I do workshops at companies and I speak and I mentor and advise companies on how to incorporate compassion into the business and software development process. Okay. That sounds really cool. And kind of a big lofty goal. Well, you know, dream big. That's how that's how you do it. But yeah, no, and, and I think uh, I really see it as planting seeds everywhere I go. And then I create like a lot of people become agents of compassion within their organizations, and they continue spreading the message. So it's really taken off. It's been amazing. That's great. Something that I've thought about a lot is kind of how to do a good technical interview. Somebody on Twitter mentioned that there was a, a bad experience somebody had with uh, whiteboard coding. And uh, I can't remember what your reply was, but that's why I got a hold of you to try to, to for us to sort of talk about what's wrong with the technical interview and what we can do to make that better. Yeah. Because it's tough. I mean, it's tough on both sides. Absolutely. I'm happy to talk about this because it does tie in directly with compassion because I think that the biggest problem is that 
tech interviews as they're done now are the opposite of compassionate. They're uh, often adversarial. And I think that that particular example you mentioned is the the woman, um, I believe that I was tweeting at that point, retweeting, she said that she had like six people watching her do the interview on the whiteboard. And afterwards, she said, oh, I completely bombed it. And she was doubting herself and everything. And there's this phenomenon of imposter syndrome in the industry where people feel like they're not good enough, that they don't belong. And I think it ties into these harmful interview processes that put people undue pressure. That's not like the pressure that you feel in the workplace. It's a very different kind of pressure. And it's why it's not effective. And it causes them to question themselves. And it's, so it's actually doing psychological harm. And that's why it's so important to me to help companies and individuals in this process. I think it's great to talk about it also because because on the other side of it, if somebody's interviewing, trying to hire somebody, the hiring manager wants to know kind of if they can, we're trying to assess stuff like what skills the person has and can they problem solve? And it's possible that sometimes that's just people being clueless and thinking, well, I don't want to just have one person's opinion of whether that person's good or not. So having a couple of people in there might be more fair. But at the same time, it puts somebody on stage a little bit. Well, so it's interesting because I think what you hit on there is a really good point, which is that a lot of the the problems with the interview process are not intentional. You know, like the people, like you said, they're like an innocent mistake. Like they're thinking, oh, yeah, six people on one. Now, what they don't understand is that especially in the situation where you're dealing with a woman, somebody from an underrepresented group, a person of color, LGBTQ, or, you know, somebody in another underrepresented group, there's this phenomenon called stereotype threat which is this extra anxiety that people from minority groups feel when put under pressure in such a situation because they have this fear of confirming negative stereotypes about their group. So in a situation where there's like six white men in the room and you're also like a white man, then sure, like there's, you know, maybe you feel camaraderie and you might not feel as much pressure. But when you feel like, oh, they all already think that I'm not good at coding because of stereotypes, it puts an extra pressure on you. So that's one dynamic that I think often gets overlooked because of the lack of diversity in tech. But it really affects everybody because, you know, it, it six people watching you do something, people who are introverted or highly sensitive people won't perform as well in that scenario. And it's the problem too, is that it's not at all what work is like. Like when you're working with somebody collaborating on a team, it's much more, or it should be much more collaborative where you're sharing ideas, you're giving each other feedback in a positive way, not like prove to me that you're not an idiot, which is basically how a lot of interviews are set up. And that's just that, you know, if you go in in that way, it's just not, it's not going to work. And and I think that doing it in this way of using, of, you know, putting pressure on people, basically putting pressure on people to prove that they're not incompetent, right, is, uh, you know, this, this form of hazing, I think, that people go through, like, we all went through it. And so we think, oh, yeah, let's just interview other people the same way. And if I survived it, they should be able to, too. And it's just using this old model that's the problem. So as far as your question about, you know, should we use whiteboard interviews, I think a whiteboard is just a prop, you know, like, that's not really... It doesn't really matter whether or not that's in the room. I personally have had positive experiences on both sides of the table using whiteboards. Like, for example, when I was being interviewed, somebody asked me to explain something, just some concept to them on the whiteboard, which I thought was a great question. And so I 
uh, explained my senior thesis, which was, you know, I'd done a, some machine learning on uh, movie reviews to do sentiment analysis on blogs. And I knew it very well because it was my senior thesis. And so I could explain it, answer questions about it, sketch it out. And it was gauging, you know, my ability to discuss technical concepts. And I thought that was a, a great use of a whiteboard. And, you know, because it was something I'd done before, I felt comfortable talking about it. And then on the other side, I've uh, used whiteboards to both communicate things to candidates, like to communicate an issue and then ask what they would do in that scenario or whatnot, or ask them to describe a past project and if they wanted to use the whiteboard. Um, so I think in those ways, it's useful. But to basically use a whiteboard as like a proxy for almost like a, a sheet of paper or like you would be taking a test on, like um, some kind of standardized test or like a computer screen and asking people to write code on it or that sort of thing, I think is not very helpful because again, it's not like what you're actually doing in the workplace. So it's not a good gauge of your skill as a software engineer. Okay. One of the things you said in your Twitter chain really bothered me. <laughs> oh, great. Let's talk about that one. We usually hire more women when we're working on family-oriented games. Oh, yeah. But that's not our focus right now. Yeah, that happened to me in one of my first interviews out of college. It was still, I was still at college, like, finishing up, and, and people came to uh, Harvey Mudd. It was this gaming company, and they came to Harvey Mudd, which was um, – I went to Pomona uh, College, but I took some classes at Harvey Mudd. It's, um, like, an engineering school. And – they came to interview us on campus. And I, you know, I did my best in the interview. And I mean, to be honest, like, I did really great in school. And I just say that because it's true. I was really good, like in all my classes, like, you know, I was summa cum laude and computer science, all this stuff. But like the tech, and so in the interview, you know, I assumed, oh, well, I test well and everything. So I'm just going to do great. But I did not anticipate in the real world, all the bias <laughs> that, uh, that women have to deal with. Because, you know, when you're taking a test, it's, it's less of a, um, an impact. So anyway, so yeah, they said that in the interview and I was just like, how do I even respond to that? And, you know, I was more insecure back then in terms of, you know, I was just entering the, the workforce. So that was pretty discouraging that they were putting me in that box of like, oh yeah, we assume that women want to work on family oriented games. Meanwhile, little did they know that like, you know, I grew up playing like Quake and Doom and Duke Nukem and like all these shoot 'em up games and, you know, but also like SimCity and all these, you know, whatever. So I actually probably would have been great. But then I was like, you know, and they ended up hiring some people from my class, of course, men who, you know, didn't do as well in the classes and everything. And so I was just like, seriously. So that was my first <laughs> taste of like, what it's like in the real world. That's just yeah. terrible. Yeah. Okay. Well, so that's what I was going to say is there's some real awful stuff like, you know, obvious sexism. Mm -hmm. There's some jerks and some complete idiots in the industry. But if you're trying to do the right thing and trying to, what do we do to go about trying to do the right thing? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, there's some extreme there, but I think more often the more common problem is more unconscious bias that gets slipped into the interview process because it's unconscious. And so, for example, if you do an interview with somebody and having been on hiring committees, I've heard this so many times, like, he just didn't seem technical enough, or I don't think she's technical enough. This is such a vague way to talk about candidates, and it means nothing, and it's tied to bias. Because a lot of times it's because, okay, maybe the person 
doesn't code on side projects all the time because they have a more balanced life, right? And that's, but they're still, you know, a competent programmer and they code well at work and then they do stuff in their free time. And sometimes things like that will be used as a signal of, oh, well, they're not really technical. Or for example, women, because of whatever other skills they communicate in the interview, aspects of emotional intelligence, empathy, et cetera, they're often also assumed like, oh, you, you know, women are often told, oh, you should be a product manager because you're so good with the customer or whatnot. When really, being an engineer who understands the customer needs and can have empathy, it makes you a better developer. So, but those people in interviews will often be labeled as not technical. So I think, yes, there's the extreme, but there's also a lot of unconscious bias. And this rules out a lot of candidates. Now, I think this is important for both sides because, you know, a lot of people talk about this, quote, talent shortage, which is a myth. I mean, there is no shortage of talent. And I know this because I see both sides of it. I uh, advise companies on this and I've interviewed tons of people, but I also mentor a lot of people uh, from underrepresented groups, especially and people from non-traditional backgrounds, so people who go through boot camps and are self-taught, and they're desperately looking for jobs. But because of these processes that are based on a narrow profile of what makes a good software engineer, they're being ruled out. So there is no talent shortage. They're just, we're bad at interviewing. And so that's the gap there that I see. And so as far as things that you can do, I think the key is to stop approaching interviews as like a hazing process or uh, coming from a place of fear, like, oh, we're so scared we're going to hire the wrong candidate or, oh, they're just faking it. Like, I feel like there's this great fear in tech that people are just pretending to be good at programming. And people cite these studies of like, you know, oh, a lot of programmers couldn't write fizz buzz or whatever. And a lot of those studies have been debunked. And the thing is that people under pressure, as we've talked about, can't perform very well. There was a study out of University of Waterloo that found that people who have anxiety and are in like intense situations have trouble counting up to five when they're under pressure. So we shouldn't be evaluating people, you know, under pressure because we're not getting their best. So I think the key like is a mindset switch here, which is fundamentally, let me go into this interview and give this person the opportunity they need to share what value they could bring to my team. You know, that, and that might mean allowing them to talk through past projects if they have them and, you know, asking technical questions about them, doing a coding exercise if they want to. I personally don't feel it's worth my time to do coding exercises for free for companies. So I don't do that. But some people do prefer that. Pairing can be pair programming can be a great way to interview for people who want to do that. But I think the key is having a variety of options and knowing what you're going to look for ahead of time with a rubric, you know, an idea of what you're looking for, but giving candidates the opportunity to share strengths that they might not get to if you try to use a very narrow way of evaluating them, especially if it's based on your own biases. Right. That's hard to get at. Well, one of the things that, that a lot of, I don't know if it's still done, but at least when I was uh, starting out, so this was 90s, 2000s, there was a, a lot of emphasis on uh, trying to get somebody that would be a good cultural fit or a team fit. Yeah. Is that like just code name for more people just like us? Yeah, I think it is. And I think Kara Swisher has this great term for that in tech, which is the meritocracy. So we like to talk about the meritocracy, but she says it's a meritocracy because it's people who all look alike and you know like the same things. And I think that happens when you try to fit somebody in. Now that said, you know, I think that there's always nuance here. So there is something to having shared values so that you can all work together well, right? I mean, there's something to that. And I don't want to 
pretend that that's not a thing because it is. And I think sometimes, you know, we overlook that. But also it's better instead of talking about culture fit to talk about culture add, which is you're looking for somebody who is bringing something to the team that you don't have. So, you know, a lot of programmers go into interviews and say, oh, I want to see how this person solves problems or how they think. And which is kind of arrogant to assume you can think you can figure out how someone thinks in like an hour long interview. But really, it's often a code for saying like, I want to make sure this person thinks like I do, because that's how I determine who's smart and who's not. And that's really often what it what it boils down to. So instead of doing that, look for somebody who thinks about things different from you, even if it seems weird, or if they seem like, oh, that's not how I would have done it. Like, oh, that's great, because that means this person will bring a balance to the team. So instead of culture fit, I think it's important to look for who's going to add to the culture, culture add. I love that idea of culture Add, or adding to the culture, also adding to the features or the skill set of the team. Yeah. Who's qualified to interview somebody for somebody that's for a skill that they don't have? You hit on one of the biggest problems, which is that engineers are given basically no training in how to interview, or there's just like, you know, a wiki page or something. But I know from doing interviews, like I could pretty much ask whatever I wanted, you know, as soon as um, assuming I wasn't, you know, crossing any like legal lines. Um, and that's a problem because a lot of times, I mean, let's be honest, I know interviews, interviewers who just open up that like cracking the coding interview book and basically pick questions and then just ask the candidate or they look up some obscure term and then right before the interview and then ask the candidate to figure it, you know, to answer the question, trivia question about it. And so the, the lack of training is a big problem. And so I think companies need to invest in training candidates on how I'm training interviewers on how to evaluate candidates, because, again, we want to look for certain skills in terms of how they're going to solve problems and things like that. And But I also think it's much more important, much more important to look for mindset and how they're going to work with others. Because it's much more important whether or not you're going to learn new skills, especially in the fast-changing industry we work in. It's much more important to think about how you learn new skills than what skills you have already. And so I emphasize growth mindset, you know, Carol Dweck's idea, this growth mindset, where it's about you know, building your believing that you can grow the skills you need. And so there are ways to get at this in an interview. And there are also ways to, and then the way you do that is you ask about, you know, things they've learned in the past and, and things, get them to tell stories about things like that. And things like empathy. I think it's been so undervalued in our industry because we work on computers, but we also work with human beings and for human beings. And so I think it's important to ask questions that get at empathy, both for the customers and for coworkers. So you might ask stories about when they've had a disagreement with coworkers or when, but not just to evaluate like, oh, that they didn't, you know, how they handled it, but more like, can they put themselves in the shoes of the other person and understand where they were coming from? A question like, you know, when was the last time you changed your mind about something? Things like that can help get at somebody's attitude. Because yeah. one thing that's not, that we're missing on a lot of tech teams is the ability to mentor. And this is important as we have more juniors coming into the field and uh, people from boot camps and self-taught, they can benefit from mentoring. And we don't have people that are very skilled at mentoring. And so being able to hire people who are also good at mentoring is, should be really important for growing the skills on your team and making you altogether more effective. That's something also something that we're not taught is how to mentor. Yeah. So this is why I saw a big gap in the industry in this and why I started my company. Because I was like, oh, wow, we're doing all of this really poorly because we've a lot of times that the emphasis has been on some guy coding alone in a basement and cranking out code. And that's what we're evaluating for. And that's not the state of modern software development. You're working on a team, you're working with customers, you know, the agile movement has you talking to customers or understanding their needs. And so we need people who have many more skills than just cranking out code. 
And it, but it even affects the code because if you have more empathy, then you're going to be better at naming variables and structuring code for maintainability because you'll have empathy for the people who are going to be using your code. So, you know, I think that these skills really are essential. They're not just like extra nice to have soft skills. And I hate that term soft skills. I always recommend using uh, catalytic skills or meta skills or something like that because these are really key skills to being a good software developer. Communication. Yeah. One of the things though I'm stuck on a little bit is that if I'm hiring somebody to write code, I kind of want to see some of their code. Yeah. And I think that that's a fundamental like misconception is that you actually have to see them, right? I don't think that you do. I think that when you talk to, I mean, if you do feel, I feel like what we need to evaluate is the value that person's going to bring to the team. And so I think you want to simulate like what that's going to be like. So there are ways to, if you do want to see code, I think offering like a pairing exercise where maybe the person, somebody on the team does the driving and then the candidate helps, you know, come up with ideas. I think that is good for helping simulate what an actual collaborative work environment would look like. And then it gives both people a chance to to um, evaluate what that working style would be like. Um, but also this person has, if they're experienced in the industry, they've likely written a lot of code. So one, they may have some to show you. And if you're trained, you can ask them very technical questions to find out whether they actually understand the code and all of that. And then two, you can either see the actual code or you can ask them very you know technical questions about how they went about planning it. Because to be honest, as a software engineer, Yes, some of your time is spent cranking out code, but I don't think it's true that we're hiring someone to write code. I think we're hiring somebody who will deliver value to our customers. And I think it's important to remember that because the actual coding part, I feel like is just is uh, something that just comes out like, you know, it, it can be, you know, you, they can learn the skills they need. So, for example, somebody who doesn't know a specific language or whatnot, if they have the, the mindset to learn that and the motivation and the track record of having learned other things, then, yeah, I'll hire them to do that. So I think that there are a lot of ways to evaluate somebody's ability to contribute to your team that don't involve forcing them to code under pressure. I don't really like the under pressure part. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I, in one of the interviews I did when I was interviewing was a company sent me, before they even did any, uh, like, too far into it, it was like a really quick phone screen or something. And then, um, like, sent me, like, three problems. Mm -hmm. And I could pick which one I wanted to do. I could use any language I wanted and then just code up the answer. And that was part of it. And then, then that code itself was used during the discussion. So that's one option. And some people will appreciate that. Some potential issues with that. One is the timing. So depending on how much time the person has, sometimes though you're given like a narrow window where you can submit it, like, oh, you have four hours to submit that. And so that does create the undue pressure and whatnot. Um, but even if you don't have that, Having this be the one representative sample of you and how you code, I think, can be really problematic and create a lot of pressure on somebody to spend excess time on it if they're given, you know, free amount of time overthinking things and whatnot. And they won't be able to ask questions and ask for clarification and feedback on things that they would be able to do under normal working conditions. So again, you're not really simulating what actually working together would be like. And then three, and this is something that often goes overlooked by people with more privilege, is that if you're a single parent or, you know, you're working several jobs already, 
you're not going to have a bunch of time to spend on doing free labor for a company that's just not very good at interviewing uh, and is forcing you to do this exercise. So I think that it's you're going to rule out candidates who don't have this luxury of a ton of extra time to be working on things like that. And that's something to consider, too, especially if you're trying to diversify your team. Okay. The free labor thing, I do get that. I, I've seen people interview where they actually ask a question that they don't know the answer to and they're trying to come up, hear what other people's opinions are. I'm like, that's lame. You're, you're trying to get free answers out of somebody. Mm-hmm. When I've used it before, I've tried to just like give, like you said, some of those really simple questions. I don't know, FizzBuzz or anything. I'm looking for a lot of stuff. So I do understand that that's a hardship on somebody. There's also like the time of trying to figure out. We do... Maybe you're in a different environment in California, but we do sometimes have trouble finding people that really do have the skill set that they list on their resume. Yeah, and I think a lot of that that perception probably comes from how you're interviewing them. So like I would challenge that because I think that I've heard that from a lot of people and then when we actually dig into it, it's because they're quickly ruling people out based on filters and unconscious bias that they're not even aware of. So I don't know, I would be curious about you know, more specifics there at another time. But, but yeah, no, I think it is important too for the, for the interviewers to have a good process, uh, you know, like a good experience. It's good. It should be good on both sides. Right. And a lot of interviewers, a lot of engineers hate doing interviews. So making it positive for them too is important. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I can see that, but I would say too, a lot of times with those take home exercises, you said you're looking for a lot of things. And the problem is those things, you know, like for example, I was at one company, they gave a candidate like a take home exercise. They returned it. It was a great solution, but they didn't include tests with it, even though that wasn't part of the assignment. And who knows if they had written tests on their own. And they said, oh, well, they probably don't do test-driven development or something like that. So a lot of times we make assumptions when we're just dealing with somebody as if they're a robot producing code rather than a thinking, feeling human being that we can actually have a conversation with. Okay. I do like the idea of uh, opening it up to um, so that there's something to talk about to say, if you have a GitHub profile or some some other code that you're that you've already have uh, that you're willing to share with us, we'd like to take a look. Or the collaborative thing where you could have questions. I like that, and it's a different personality thing. I think giving somebody a choice. Me personally, I'd rather go off in a corner and think about the problem and solve it rather than while somebody's listening to me do it on a like a a pair programming application or something. That would stress me out. Right, exactly. Yeah, and that's the thing is giving options. And that's why I think, honestly, yeah, having that variety and, and really making the goal, like finding people's strengths rather than trying to expose their weaknesses can really change completely the way we do interviews. I'm thinking while we're talking, it would be completely reasonable to just be upfront about what we're looking for. Just like, for instance, um, when I'm trying to look at somebody's Python code, I know people come from Python from different languages. So I want to make sure that they don't, they aren't really just writing C in Python or really just writing Java in Python. It's not just a personal preference. It's a maintainability with the rest of the code base. Right. And then the question though, is how much, how hard is it to close that gap? Like, you know, if you think that they are like, for example, I was hired at a company to write Ruby code using Ruby on Rails, and I had never written Ruby before. I had written Python, I'd written SQL Plus, Java, all that, but I had never written Ruby code. They hired me anyway, and I learned on the job. And sure, the first few months, I did write like C code, you know, C plus plus code in Ruby. I, I like I did for loops instead of you know like like I did like old fashioned kind of like for loops instead of you know the the Ruby dot each thing and everything. But you can learn. But I could learn, and so I think that that's the thing is why rule someone out because they don't 
you know, include Tez or because of the, the style, when those could be style guidelines that you give as part of their onboarding, because, you know, this stuff is not that hard to pick up. I mean, I'm just being honest here. It's like, once you know the fundamentals of coding, like as far as these style things, what's important is to have the motivation to learn it and the openness and like the humility to admit that you need to improve on these things, not that you can already do everything perfectly or perfectly according to the company's standards. And so I think, again, that's that's a thing that is missing in our typical interviews. Yeah. So the ability to learn and change and uh, how do you determine that in an interview? Yeah. And I think that's a very human thing, which is why a lot of engineers aren't good at assessing it. And uh, that's why training comes into play. And that's why, you know, I do training and other people do training on this. But it's asking questions about past experiences, you know, and asking them, about past projects and then trying to get into like, well, who did you work with on this? And what was, you know, what did they think about that? Or, you know, were there other ideas proposed for doing this and trying to get through some of the the walls that people often put up and try to get into, you know, like I said, like when was the last time you changed your mind about something or like, is there something that you used to believe and now, you know, you no longer do? Cause that gauges somebody's openness and, and people who are open-minded will probably have a ton of those to talk about. So a lot of interviews with companies, there's going to be, the person is going to go around, either multiple people will come in the room one after another, you know, every half hour or 40 minutes, or the interviewee, the person being interviewed, will go around to different people's offices or desks or whatever and, and get interviewed in different for by different people. For some people, that's terrifying. Is that a good thing, bad thing? Can we change it, fix it? Well, terrifying is definitely never a good thing, I, I don't think. But so, but could you, you mean just being interviewed by multiple people? Is that the... Yeah, like over the course of five hours or six hours. It's a, it's a long day of an interview. It's terrifying and it's also exhausting, to be honest. I mean, like I've heard from a lot of people who just feel exhausted after a day like that. And it's, again, it's not like what it's going to be working there. And so it's like, you know, towards the end of the day, especially, you're not really getting the best assessment of that person. So, you know, I really don't think that that's that's necessary. Like, I think that examples of great, like, interviews that were long enough to gauge somebody's competence, but not overwhelming, were like a few hours, like maybe three hours or something like that, spent pairing with someone on the team, maybe two people on the team, and then like a conversation afterwards with somebody else on the team that sometimes, you know, a hiring manager or, or whatever. And, you know, that kind of thing can be can be helpful. And if instead you, you aren't doing the pairing thing and you're doing the exercise, like I think trying to get it down to, you know, we talk about like MVP for things. I think it's important to get like minimally viable interview where you, you're like you're getting what you need and you're giving the candidate a chance, but you're not you're being respectful of everyone's time. So yeah, I think we don't need to do those marathon uh, interview days. And I think that I've never seen one of those that's good, even when people, you know, I think that they're always, they're always usually paired with, um, they're typically paired with poor interview practices in other ways, because it's just, you know, a lack of compassion for the interviewer and the interviewee, to be honest, because, you know, people get tired with that much, um, with that much going on. It is tiring. One of the reasons it's done sometimes is to make sure that there isn't just one person saying yes or no. Multiple people is good, but it's about finding that balance. So do you need six people? Not necessarily. Like, do do you need more than one? Yes. And then the balance is somewhere in between and it depends, you know, on the team and everything like that. This idea of an in like a like a pairing, like two or three people hanging out with the well, probably one to two people hanging out with the person mm -hmm. coding through an exercise. You, so you can't like show people your secret code 
So do you come up with like coding challenges at that point or how do you, did you do that? Yeah. So I've seen it done both ways. So some people, you know, have parts of the code that they are, don't mind sharing because they're, you know, especially this works for like small startups and stuff that their code's not that valuable yet. So, and, and this is how interviews are done at Pivotal, at least when I uh, interviewed there for a startup that was working there, Pivotal Labs. So sometimes it can be code, like in a part of the system, like maybe too, if you have anything open source, that would be useful too. But it's otherwise, yeah, I mean, I think at one company we did a kind of one of those basic problems that you might give to a candidate. But instead of having them do it on their own, uh, we wrote it together. And what was cool too about that was we were using a language that wasn't the language being the person was being hired for. So it was more to talk about more abstract like levels of how they solve problems. And so the emphasis wasn't on syntax or anything like that. It was more on that worked at the company did the, the coding and they knew the language. And so it was more having the other person say, okay, and then we'll want to have a variable for this. So they don't need to, you know, know, that specific language. I think that that's like a higher level of uh, hiring where we understand that computer science concepts kind of transcend language. I mean, yes, there are language specific things you need to learn, but those are much more easy to grasp in a few weeks of like, you know, reading the materials on it. But the fundamental like computer science concepts and uh, problem solving concepts are really what's much more important to the value you're going to bring to a team. Like, can you understand the problem? Can you come up with solutions? Can you discuss solutions with other people? You know, those are the types of skills that I think we should be going after rather than like, oh, do, do you remember how to declare a class in Java and all this stuff? And it's like, well, I mean, like I, I might have to look that up, whatever it is, you know. So I think that that's that's an example. I don't even know if they do it anymore. I, I, actually, I've never interviewed with Google, so I don't know if that's true. But these weird questions like how many marbles fits in, fit in a school bus and things like that. Yeah. And they came out saying that they know that those interviews aren't very effective. They, they recently came out, one of some of their people, and, and said that, you know, those were not effective. And so, sadly, the industry is not is still using a lot of those questions, yeah. other arbitrary things that aren't very useful. We've at one point tried to come up with, um, in the past, I've been involved with interview processes. We're trying to come up with like a representative problem that is similar to what we're working on. But, you know, there's a lot of roles that what we're doing is so we don't even expect somebody to understand like communication systems right off the bat, because I know that there's not going to be anybody that's an RF expert, a communication system expert, and uh, can know and knows really good C++ and Python all at once. That, yeah. Those people don't exist. So we got to figure out what skill we're really trying to fill for and what they can learn. The other thing is uh, people, we're not taught how to teach people either. The, this idea that somebody can learn on the job with mentoring re that relies on the team being able to help teach. And uh, teaching is a skill that we don't often have. So we got to approach it from somewhere. So it's like, you know, you got to start, change has to start somewhere. And so I think it's about promoting people who are good at, at mentoring already. If you do have some, it's about hire, starting to hire, weighting more heavily how well someone mentors uh, when you're hiring them versus how fast they crank out code solutions to whatever. You know, those are ways to change. Because, you know, this really, we need to have a big culture shift here. And so it will lead us to challenging the traditional way we do things. And I think that that's a good thing because uh, I think it will help the industry. It'll help us make better products. And I just think it's the way to go here. Okay. Let's say there's a hiring manager or a team that needs to ramp up pretty quickly and hire some people. And for some reason, you're completely booked and they can't hire you. <laughs> Is there some place where they can go to just sort of at least get better than where they're at now to learn some more stuff about 
interviewing better? A few resources that there are online. So one is, I wrote a blog post that touches on, um, well, I've written a couple that touch on some of these points. So one is called Leave Your Gut Out of Hiring Decisions. And I think that will help people understand some of their own biases and that sort of thing. I've written another one about, uh, it's called If You Can Use a Fork, You're Technical, uh, where I talk about this, uh, I told you about this bias of, oh, this person doesn't seem technical. And that gets at a lot of the assumptions we bring into the interview process. And I talk through some interview examples and, and how to do it better there. And then three, and this is not something I'm affiliated with, but it's a great website, I think, that will help people understand the problem with tech interviews and, and how to do better is Project Include. I think it's projectinclude.org. Okay. They talk about, they, they have specific strategies for you know dealing with uh, having better interviews and whatnot. So I think that's another place to go. Um, and I would say, don't go to Google Microsoft history or cracking the coding interview and definitely not Joel Spolsky's uh, Gorilla Guide to Interviewing, which I know a lot of people still point to. Don't go to those. <laughs> go to uh, anything else pretty much um, is probably better than those. <laughs> but yeah. I love all this information and I love it. I'd love it if we could fix this because we really code it. Software, yes, we need some people to be have solid computer science backgrounds, but we also need people with other backgrounds as well. And just like a lot of, with so many software problems that we kind of need to be fairly representative of the rest of the population, we'd probably write better software that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm glad that you're one of the people trying to, to fight the good fight. And thanks <laughs> for all of this great information. Thank you. Yeah. I think um, if I could leave you with a few, like three things, one would be hire for mindset, attitude over the other things. To look for things like empathy that don't get as much due, allow the candidate to show their strengths. And finally, like I think just an easy way to see if you're doing this right is the candidate should leave feeling good regardless of the hiring decision. They should still like respect your company and everything. You sh they shouldn't be crying afterwards, which is something I've done after many tech interviews. So try to leave the person feeling good regardless of whether or not you hire them. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Crying is bad. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean... Um, not necessarily, but uh, an interview Making that forces somebody, somebody to cry. Yes. Yeah, that's not, that's not good. <laughs> yeah. so, yes. Well, good luck with everything you've got going on, and um, I'll talk to you later. Yeah, for sure. And my website's CompassionateCoding.com that, uh, if people want to stay in touch. I've got a newsletter. So they can come to CompassionateCoding.com or I'm on Twitter at April Wenzel. Tweet a lot about interviews. Yeah, and lots of other great stuff. that You do <laughs> things like code reviews and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, we can do better. We can all do better. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for coming on. I'll talk to you later. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. Thank you to April for all that great information. The links discussed in the show are in the show notes at testingcode.com slash 72. Thank you to Patreon supporters for sponsoring the show. You keep the lights on and the servers up, and I really appreciate it. I hope this episode was helpful to you. It was helpful to me. And if you know some hiring managers that might benefit from hearing this, please pass it along. That's all for now. Thanks for listening.